I think that this morning's sermon is going to be uh, shorter than usual. When, whenever I'm preaching expositionally, where we're going through verse by verse, uh, I find it difficult to teach and preach a, a text in, in under 50 minutes to an hour, which is why when we're going through books of the Bible, it, that's typically how long it takes, but we're in a short topical series, and, and sometimes when it is a topical theme that we're looking at, the sermon can be quite a bit longer than usual, or it can be shorter. So uh, I'm anticipating that this morning that the material we have here is going to take less time, that's not intentional on my part, as we're looking at the Lord's Supper, there, there is so much here, there is so much to the texts that we're going to be looking at, including the one that Pastor Greg read just a couple minutes ago in John chapter 6, and we could really spend hours, but I've decided to really stick to, to what is plain, what is plain to me. And to only teach as far as I understand the text that we're looking at. And frankly, there is still a lot for me to know. And there's, a, there's more depth for me to understand. And I wouldn't be qualified yet to get into those trenches. So we'll look at it though today. And I think we'll gain an understanding that's going to be it's going to be good for us and helpful for us. I know it has been for me. If you are visiting today, and maybe this is your first Sunday here, welcome. We are concluding today a four-week sermon series on the church's sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is a, a one-time sacrament, formally picturing entrance into the church. It's like the front door. The Lord's Supper is a repeated sacrament, and it is formally picturing ongoing, ongoing covenant with Christ and His people and His church. It's like the dinner table. So if it's a house, baptism is the front door, and then communion is this dinner table. So in this church, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every single Sunday. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we read five times that communion was taking place as the church came together. Five times we're told, came together, came together, when you come together, when you come together. And the Greek word for church that is used there is ekklesia, which means literally the assembled ones. That's what the word church means. It means the assembled ones. And so we think that it is good and right to come to the Lord's table every time we formally assemble for worship. Every time we come together formally as a church, which is on Sunday, the first day of the week, which is when the church has been gathering for worship ever since the resurrection of Jesus. So that is why we do what we do here. Uh, personally, I was thinking this week of all the different ways that I have experienced the Lord's Supper. The way we do it here is 
is not the way that I experienced the Lord's Supper growing up. My dad was a pastor, so I grew up in church. I grew up in lots of different churches. And typically, as I thought back, during communion, we would stay seated in our rows, and then these trays would be passed. The same trays, by the way. They look exactly, they could be the same trays. And these trays were passed, and in one of the trays was this, was this tiny little rectangle about the size of a tic-tac, and it represented but didn't resemble bread. And then we had, in the next tray, we had these little cups of juice, and, and they would be passed as, as music would be played, and then we would take those elements whenever we wanted to. So some people would just take them right away, and then other people would wait and take them at some point during the music, and some would wait till the music was over. You get the idea. Everyone would take it at a different time. Uh, when this church began, those of you who were here over 10 years ago, uh, you will remember that we celebrated communion very different than we do today. We actually celebrated communion in my backyard of my home next to a, a koi pond. It was very different. How many people have done that? We would form a line inside our uh, living room. We'd form a line and then we would make our way into the backyard where we had a, a table set up. And then on that table, you could, you could grab uh, this round, so we went from rectangular to round now, this flat round wafer that tasted like styrofoam. You really felt like you were eating styrofoam. And you take this round wafer, and then we, would, we had a, this fancy, I think it was like a fancy goblet, this cup uh, of juice, and then we would dip we would dip the wafer into the cup, and then we would return to our seat, and then we would take communion. And I remember that we ended that practice sometime after one of our members failed to see what everyone in front of him in the line was doing, and then to the horror of everyone behind him, he picked up the cup and drank <laughs> from the cup, and then put it down. I think some people, they didn't take communion that morning. Uh, that practice of dipping, is that, it's called intinction. That's an actual practice. We no longer do that uh, for, for the reason I just told you. But also, uh, it seems clear in Scripture that we're to take and eat, and then we're to take and drink, and it's actually two separate things. And so now we say, sip it, don't dip it. But by far... By far the most irreverent way that communion has been taken among us happened one afternoon several years ago in my home office. I had a communion kit, um, and this communion kit uh, was for taking communion to uh, church members that maybe couldn't actually physically make it here to worship, and so they sell these communion kits, uh, and they're like, look, they look like the little communion cups. But then on the top of the communion cup, you actually peel it back, and the wafer is in there, and then you, you peel it back, and then you have the juice. So anyway, I had this kit in my office, and I remember uh, one afternoon I was at work, and then I returned home, and I saw on the floor in the middle of my office 
uh, one of these little communion cups. And the, the, it was, the top was peeled back, and the, the bread was gone, and the juice was gone. And so I, I thought to myself, who has partaken in an unworthy manner? What's going on? So I went and, and talked to my kids, and I found out that my son, Jackson, he told me that for the past four weeks, he had been secretly administering communion to his two-year-old brother, Reed, whenever he wanted a snack. And so he took me outside and behind my office where there were like 20 of these communion cups that had been taken and discarded. So we can do better than that as a church. We can do better than that, and we aim to through this set of sermons. So last time together, we learned that the Lord's Supper, like baptism, it is an ordinance. It is something that has been commanded by Christ in Luke chapter 22. In 1 Corinthians 11, we are told, do this, do this in remembrance of me, that is, in remembrance of Christ. We also took note that the very first Lord's Supper took place during a Passover meal, which then turned an, an old significant meal into a new significant meal for Israel to be freed from Bondage in Egypt, an unblemished lamb must be sacrificed. And that was remembered in their Passover meal. And for us, for sinners, to be freed from bondage to sin, our Passover lamb, according to 1 Corinthians 5, 7, he must be sacrificed. And we remember that in this new significant meal, the Lord's Supper. And then lastly, based on Matthew 26, in 1 Corinthians 11, we learn that the Lord's Supper is both a memorial done to remember Christ crucified and it's a proclamation done to proclaim Christ crucified. As John Flavel wrote, this supper is like a token of love left by a dying friend to a dear surviving friend. And as J.I. Packer says, in this supper, the gospel is made visible, which stirs up our faith. So it's a memorial, it is a proclamation, and now this morning, communion. Communion, which is the term that many of you know the Lord's Supper by. The Lord's Supper is a memorial, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation, and it's also communion. It is communion in which we commune with Christ and we commune with one another. By faith, together we feed on Christ. Think of the verses that we read a few minutes ago. By faith, as Christians in the Lord's Supper, we feed on Christ. And as we feed on Christ, by faith, Spiritually, we are nourished by Him. We are strengthened by Him as we receive all of His benefits and all of His blessings. So let's go to Him now. Let's ask for these blessings through the preaching of His Word. Would you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in Heaven, thank You for blessing us. Thank you for giving us mountains of grace and mercy. 
Thank you for all the ways that you reach us with your love through prayer, through reading your word and through the preaching of your word and through your people ministering to us and through the Lord's Supper. We ask that you would pour out your spirit and fill our hearts and fill our minds, we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Open your Bibles to John chapter 6, and we'll go there shortly. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find our text on page 839. So in today's sermon, I'm looking to answer three questions. Question number one, what is meant by communion? As we look at the Lord's Supper today as communion, what do we mean by that? What is meant by communion? Question number two, who is communion for? Who is the Lord's Supper for? Who is it not for? And question number three, how should we take communion? For those of us who take the Lord's Supper, for those of us who take communion, how should we do that? I don't mean physically. I mean, what should our attitude be when we take communion? What should we be thinking about when we take communion? How should we take the Lord's Supper? This is communion. The Anglican preacher Charles Simeon wrote, let us learn how to use God's ordinances, which is what we've been seeking to do in this sermon series. We want to use baptism and the Lord's Supper, these gifts God has given us. He goes on, we should be thankful for them. We should honor them. And then he says this, we should look to God in them and expect from God through them the communications of His grace and peace. Look to. Expect from. Look to God. Expect from God. This is communion with God. We do this in prayer. We look to God and expect from God. We do this in reading the Bible. We're looking to God and we're expecting from God. We, we do this when we Sing, we're looking to God and expecting from God. We do this in preaching and we do this in the Lord's Supper. So think of it alongside these other things that we do in which we're looking to God and also receiving from God and expecting from God. In the Lord's Supper, we commune with God. That is, we look to God in communion. And, and this may be new for some of you, we should be expecting from God in communion. It's not just something that you do. Something is being done to you in the Lord's Supper and in communion. This is going both ways. Look at verse 35 of John chapter 6. You'll see this. Communion, looking to God, receiving from God, expecting from God. Verse 35 of John chapter 6. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, we look to God. We come to him. We look to God and then what happens? Is the door opened? We come to God and we, we knock on the door. Is it just us knocking on the door? Or is the door actually opened? Is the, is the phone picked up on the other end when we're praying or reading the Word or listening to preaching or taking the Lord's Supper? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. So something is coming back to us shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So we look to God. We come to God. We go to God. We reach for Him. We feed on Him, and He meets us. He satisfies us. You come to me and you're hungry, and... You shall not hunger because you came to me. You come to me thirsty and you no longer will be thirsty because you came to me. We look to God and then we receive from God. He satisfies us. That is communion with God. And that can happen in the Lord's Supper. That communion with God can happen in the Lord's Supper. That relating to the living God can happen in the Lord's Supper. When we do something over and over and over again, right? When we do something week in and week out and week in and week out, it's so easy to just do it and not really be doing anything other than outwardly and physically. I'm sure you've been there just like I've been there. Like I'm often there. And I'm coming forward and I'm walking forward and, and I'm thinking about all kinds of different things. And I'm taking the bread and I'm taking the juice and I'm thinking about all kinds of different things. And I sit down and, and we take it together and I'm tempted to think about all kinds of different things. And it can come and go and it can come and go and it can come and go. And if you were to ask me, what it meant to me, if you'd ask me, did you commune with the living God in those few minutes? Ashamedly, sometimes, maybe even often, I think that I would say, no, I did not. It's easy for us, isn't it? When something is formal, and some things need to be formal, and when something is regular, and important things need to be regular, but it's easy for us to then just go through the motions. To not be engaged. To forget what this is all about. Or maybe for some of you, to never have known what this is all about. But we have this gift that's been given to us. That a dying friend has given to a dear surviving friend. This is for you. And it is for you to commune with me in a very special way that is unlike any other communion that you will have with me. 
where you gather with my people, where you gather with the other ones that I've adopted into my family and made your brothers and made your sisters. And you'll have this small little meal together that is filled with significance and filled with meaning. If your heart is right and your mind is right, you will meet with me in that time and I will meet with you and your brothers and sisters and we shall have communion together. It's communion with Christ. We'll come back to John chapter 6. But let's go now to a text that we've looked at before. If you have your Bible, you can flip forward to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going here because this the word from which we get communion, it's in this text. It's going to be the word participation. But it is the word from which we get the word communion. So look at 1 Corinthians 10, and then a verse at a time. We'll read verse 16, 17, and 18. I think I'll read 16 and then 18 and go back to 17. I hope that'll be clear to you why I do that. But let's start with verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless. Okay, that is referring to the cup of the Lord's Supper. Right? We have this cup and we pray for it. Okay, we bless this cup. It means we pray, thank you God for this. So the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? In other words, it is. This cup that we partake of in the Lord's Supper, it is a participation in the blood of Christ. The bread that we break, that refers to the bread of the Lord's Supper, is it not, it is, participation in the body of Christ. That Greek word that is translated here, participation, is koinonia. It's also translated depending where you go in the New Testament. They've used different English words based on the context. But it is also translated as fellowship or sharing or partnership or communion. It means this, close and intimate relationship. It is close and intimate relating to one another. So calling the Lord's Supper communion it gets to the heart of what is actually happening at the Lord's table. Communion with Christ. Relating to Christ and to one another. Close and intimate relating. Close and intimate relationship that we have with Christ. When we drink the cup, we participate, according to 1 Corinthians 10.16, we participate in the blood of Christ. When we eat the bread, we participate in the body of Christ. Now, I'm going to assume that that's not plain to you what that means. That when I drink this cup, I'm participating in the blood of Christ. That when I eat this bread, I'm participating in the body of Christ. So, look at verse 18. This is going to help us understand. The same word is used here. Consider the people of Israel. So think Old Testament. 
are not those who eat the sacrifices. So remember, they had a sacrificial system that God instituted and they would make these sacrifices and they would often eat these sacrifices. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants, that's the same word, participants in the altar. So in verse 16, the word participation This is the same word, participants, in verse 18. So Israel made sacrifices, and when they made and ate these sacrifices, they were participants in the altar. Now, that's a little easier to understand. The sacrifice, it was for them. That sacrifice was in their place. They, like we, They were sinners, and their sins deserved punishment, deserved justice, deserved wrath. And so God built this sacrificial system to teach them that your sins need to be paid for. If forgiveness of sin is going to happen, blood will need to be shed. And so temporarily, for a long time in Israel, these sacrifices were made. So it's like the sacrifice gets what you deserve. That sacrifice on that altar, you're a participant in the altar because that sacrifice is there because of you. It's there on your behalf. It is there as a substitute so that you could be forgiven. The body and blood of Jesus, which is symbolized by the bread and the cup, is For you, Christian, Christ sacrificed on the altar of the cross. He was there. He who knew no sin became sin for us, the people of God, so that we could be reconciled to God. He is our true Passover lamb. He is the ultimate sacrifice. He was there on the cross for us. He was on the cross as our substitute. He is the greater Old Testament sacrifice. He is the perfect sacrifice. And through Jesus, we can be forgiven. So when we take this cup, we have participation in the blood of Christ, the blood that was shed. When we eat this bread, we have participation in the body of Christ that was broken for us. He was killed for us. He died for us. When he died, we died. When he was raised to life, we're united to him. We also have been raised to life. So Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus, who loved him and gave himself for him, who loved you and gave himself for you. For I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. The life I live in the body, I live by faith now in Christ, the Son of God. So you've been united to Christ. We've been linked to to Christ 
so that his death, the punishment that was unleashed on him, was in our place. So that we can commune with him. Not only commune with him, here's verse 17. And verse 17 answers, it, answers, it, it gives the reason for this. It gives the reason for why historically, and this is a good thing, it is never ideal for Christians to take communion unless they are gathered with other Christians. This is not an individual thing. When we take communion, we're communing with Christ and with one another. Verse 17. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Think of the Last Supper and then think about in Corinth. Their custom was to tear individual pieces from one loaf of bread. And that was intentional to symbolize that they were not only intimately connected to Jesus, but they were intimately connected to one another. Intimately connected to one another as they together made up the very body of Christ. So during the Lord's Supper, we are not only communing with Christ, we are communing with one another. That's why we try to eat from the same bread. That's why we eat and drink at the same time. Because we are one body. One body. United to Christ, but also united to one another. It's not just an individual communing with Christ. It is a corporate communing with one another. That's taking place during the Lord's Supper. In the Lord's Supper, remembering and proclaiming His death, we commune with Christ. We look to Christ. And we receive everything His death purchased for us. Everything. Forgiveness of sin. Reconciliation to God, eternal life, unity with one another, and on and on. Listen to how our confession puts this in chapter 30, paragraph 1. This is the second half of that paragraph. It, the Lord's Supper, it is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death their spiritual nourishment and growth in Him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe Him. The supper is to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ and each other. The Lord's Supper is for, we're told, the confirmation of our faith. The confirmation of our faith. We're reminded who we are. As you take communion in this church, leaders serve you. And what do they say to you? They look you in the eyes and say, the body and the blood of Christ broken and shed for you. But they don't just say it to you. They say it to the person behind you in the line. And the person behind them and behind them. We see 
who they are, as best we can tell, that belong to Christ. And so our faith is even confirmed in this time. Also, it is a pledge of your commitment to Christ and one another. Renewing this commitment week after week after week. Communing with Jesus. Communing with one another. Also, we're told it is for your spiritual nourishment and growth in Him. Which is this communion we're talking about. It's not just something that I'm doing. It's something that's being done to me. It's not just me looking to Christ. It is me receiving from Christ. Paragraph 7. Worthy recipients who outwardly partake of the visible elements in this ordinance also, that's outwardly, but also by faith inwardly, receive and feed on Christ crucified and all the benefits of his death. They do so really and truly, yet not physically and bodily, but spiritually. The body and blood of Christ are not present bodily or physically in the ordinance, but spiritually to the faith of believers, just as the elements themselves are present to their outward senses. So we take the Lord's Supper, or two things are happening. We, we feed on this bread, and we feed on this juice here by eating and drinking. That's what we're doing with our bodies. We feed on this symbol and we feed on this symbol. And in the Lord's Supper, we feed on Christ by faith. By faith, we're feeding on Christ as we come to commune with him. And this feeding, go back, is what's being talked about in John chapter 6. Let's read these verses. I'll read 53 through 58. John chapter 6. Remember, we all understand one thing, and that is that when our bodies are hungry, we eat. And if your body is hungry and you don't eat, your body will what? You'll die eventually. And when our body is thirsty, we drink. And we're hungry and we're thirsty because we need to eat and we need to drink. And we need to eat and we need to drink in order to live. Well, your soul is also hungry. Your soul is also thirsty. And your soul needs to feed on Christ can only be nourished by Christ and his gospel can only be fed spiritually by God that spiritual need for joy and peace and hope can only be found in Christ and so the Christian the way your body is nourished by food the Christian's soul is nourished by Jesus and it gets nourished when we commune with him in the Lord's Supper so listen to how he talks about this in John chapter 6. I remember this text terrifying me when I was a child. 
Because I had no idea what this meant. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. You can imagine how that sounds to a child. But he's talking about something deeper here. He's talking about something spiritual here, not physical. Verse 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Remember what his blood and his flesh represent. He's talking about his life given. His body broken, his blood shed. For his people on the cross. We have to feed on that. We have to feed on Christ crucified. And all that means for us as his people. Verse 55. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. And I in him. As the living father sent me. And I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. That is, whoever feeds on Christ. Whoever comes to Jesus hungry, and thirsty and find satisfaction in him will have life. So we believe that when we take the Lord's Supper, we feed on Christ. As we physically eat and drink these symbols of his body, we spiritually by faith take in Christ. And we're nourished by him. This is communion with Christ. And this is what is available to us at the Lord's Supper. Have you ever sat across a table and enjoyed fellowship with somebody? It's not always fellowship. It's not always communion with somebody. And it's not a bad thing. But aren't there those times where maybe you sit across a table from someone and things get below the surface. Things get deeper. And you commune with one another. You fellowship with one another. You're encouraged by your time together. You're given hope through your time together. Maybe you were unsettled and there's peace because of your time together. You're totally certain that they love you and they're totally certain that you love them. This is the kind of communion we're to have at the Lord's table. He invites us, He's the host. And he invites us to commune with him and to commune with one another. Charles Hodge wrote, Christ is present not bodily but spiritually. 
not in the sense of local nearness, but of efficacious operation. His people receive him, not with the mouth, but by faith. They do not receive his flesh and blood as material particles, but his body as broken and his blood as shed. So that was question one. That is what communion is. Now, in light of what communion is, quickly, these last two questions. The next question and the answer might be fairly obvious to you at this point is who is the Lord's Supper for? Who can take this meal? Who cannot? Historically, churches have fallen into three categories when it comes to who is permitted to take communion. And this is called fencing. How do you fence the Lord's table? Who's allowed to take the Lord's Supper and who is not? That's not a physical like barring or keeping people away from it, but in what you say. And we have something that we do at this church. The three categories are, number one, open. Open communion is, means that communion is for anyone who calls themselves a Christian. As a church, we think that open communion is unwise in light of nominal Christianity. In other words, we live in a day where many call themselves Christians who, if they are brought to understand what a Christian is and what the gospel is, they would just tell you that's not what they mean when they say that they're a Christian. And that's fairly rampant today. So we think that's unwise to invite anyone and everyone who calls themselves a Christian to the Lord's table. On the other side is closed communion. Closed communion means that the Lord's Supper is only for those who are affirmed members of a local congregation. So if we did that, it would mean that only those of you, 130 or so, who are affirmed members of this church, communion is only open to you. Typically, those churches might celebrate the Lord's Supper at an evening service or maybe even at a members' meeting. So we are not open and we are not closed. Another category is commonly called close. Close communion. That means that the Lord's table is open to baptized believers. That is the other ordinance, and that is the first ordinance. Baptized believers who are committed to Christ and his people. And we have a way that we communicate that. In other words, it's not enough that someone considers themselves a Christian. We want to know, do other people consider you a Christian? Are you accountable to anyone? Are you committed to Christ and his people? Has a church affirmed you as a Christian? And so... In our bulletin, we say something like this. At Veritas Church, all baptized believers who are willing to forsake their sin, trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, and are committed to this or another local church that proclaims the gospel, are welcome to receive the Holy Communion with us. And our announcement is the same. And every week, I who, or whoever is introducing the time of the Lord's Supper will say something like that. If you're a baptized believer, if you're a Christian, and briefly state what that means, and if you are committed to a local church, whether it is this or another one that preaches the same gospel that you hear here today. That's close communion. So who is the Lord's Supper for? The Lord's Supper is for Christians. 
The Lord's Supper is for believers, not those who know they are not Christians. It is not for those who are not sure whether or not they are Christians. And it is not for those who claim to be a Christian but are walking in open rebellion to him. We'll talk more about that when we get to the rest of 1 Corinthians 11 in a few weeks. One more question. Last question. How should I take communion? What should my attitude be? What should I be thinking about? Again, maybe what we've already talked about has made the answer to this question more clear to you. Well, when we take communion... Remember, we are physically receiving into our bodies the bread and the juice, and we are spiritually, by faith, receiving into our souls the life-saving, life-sustaining effects of the broken body and poured-out blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a time to remember. It is a time to remember Christ. I should be thinking about the cross of Christ. It is a time to proclaim. We're proclaiming our salvation in Christ alone. We're proclaiming that to one another as we rise and as we look at one another and as we see one another, as we come forward and return to our seats and to take this together. And we're communing. Communing with Christ. So in this time of communion, you should be looking to God. You should be focused on God. And you should be expecting from Him. You should be looking to receive from Him. You should be thinking about the cross of Christ and all that that means for you. It's definitely a time of self-examination. I'm always flooded. I don't think I do this intentionally, but I'm always flooded with the week between the last time I took communion and this communion. And I'm thinking about my week and what happened that week and and what I said and what I did and what I thought. And usually I'll feel guilty. Or something will come to mind that I feel ashamed about. Or something will come to mind that I regret or wish that I could take back. Here I am about to commune with Jesus and I'm remembering my sin and why He had to die for me. And so when we come to communion, as 2 Corinthians 6.10 says, we're a people who are sorrowful yet always rejoicing. I'm sorrowful because of who I am and what I've done. But I'm rejoicing that Jesus died for me. And so I'm forgiven. I'm washed clean. And I receive his love, receive his grace. So what if those thoughts come to your mind? What if you're struggling Some of you have a difficult time taking communion, and I know some Christians, it's their practice to abstain from taking communion when they are struggling 
with sin. And I would just say that that may be a better time than ever to commune with Christ. Don't cut yourself off from communion with Christ. If you don't feel worthy, good. If you feel worthy, that's a problem. Maybe that's when you should stay in your seat. So let me close with J.C. Ryle. He says this, A sense of our own utter unworthiness is the best worthiness that we can bring to the Lord's table. A deep feeling of our entire indebtedness to Christ for all we have and hope for is the best feeling we can bring with us. The people I now have in view ought to consider seriously whether the ground they have taken up is defensible and whether they are not standing in their own light. If they are waiting till they feel in themselves perfect hearts, perfect motives, perfect feelings, perfect repentance, perfect love, perfect faith, they will wait forever. There never were such communicants in any age. Certainly not in the days of our Lord and of the Apostles. There never will be as long as the world stands. No, rather, the very thought that we feel literally worthy is a symptom of secret self-righteousness and proves us unfit for the Lord's table in God's sight. Sinners we are when we first come to the throne of grace. Sinners we will be till we die. Converted, changed, renewed, sanctified, but sinners still. In short, no man is really worthy to receive the Lord's Supper who does not deeply feel that he is a miserable sinner. So when we come to the Lord's table today, Psalm 34, 8, we should taste and see that the Lord is good and find our refuge in him. Again, if you're visiting today, you're welcome to take communion with us. If you are a baptized believer, you have turned from your sin and you have trusted in Christ for salvation and in nothing and no one else. And you're committed to a local church, whether it is this or another one that preaches the same gospel you heard here today. If that's you, then you're welcome to take the Lord's Supper with us. We'll have leaders up front to serve you. We ask that you'd come forward and take bread and juice and return to your seat. And then would you please wait so we can take it together as a family. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word today. And when we say that, we mean thank you for the truth that is in your word. We thank you for all the truth that is to be mined in your scripture we thank you, God, for giving us the supper that we should take regularly together. We thank you, God, for giving us instruction, what we should remember, what we should proclaim. And we look forward now to communion with you. God, take this bread and take this juice and use it to minister to us by faith all that you have become to us through Christ. We thank you and give you all praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.